Listener Production. A warning. This episode touches on topics involving violence against women and sexual assault. So please listen with care. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737732. And the number for Lifeline is 131114. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, more gripping insights into the world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week, You'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. So his DNA was still on there and the police go and arrest him. And there starts his journey, being as he has stated, um, you know, falsely accused of this crime. This week on Crime Insiders Forensics. The often misunderstood world of DNA transfer with Dr Georgina Meekin. 10 to 15% of the DNA on our hands is actually coming from other people. You see on television and in crime shows that presence of DNA means someone must be guilty. But that's really not the case at all. And you'll hear why as we dive into the conversation with Georgina and explore a criminal case which baffled scientists and police alike. This is the murder of Anne-Marie Foy. She was beaten to death and found essentially on the verge of a, of a, of a road in, in the city. And she was found half naked. And so when they were you know, recovering the body and examining the scene, they took samples of a lot of different things from that area. It was a very dirty um, area on the side of road. There was a lot of used condoms, vegetation, a whole variety of samples that they took. And she was still wearing a bra and a cardigan. And so they took a lot of samples from that as well, along with uh, underneath her fingernails, which is, you know, kind of standard practice for a deceased individual. But originally, when they examined the DNA, they inferred a male DNA profile that they felt could have contributed. But these DNA uh, samples were very, were mixtures. They were DNA coming from multiple people, so they were quite hard to interpret. So in the first instance, they were able to um, try and uh, infer this male DNA profile. They uploaded the database and they didn't get any hits. A few years later, with more advanced technology that was a bit more sensitive, they re-ran those samples and they were able to infer a different single source DNA profile. They uploaded the database and this is when they identified David Butler. And I guess you know, right now listeners might be thinking, oh, but his DNA was on the database so he must have been guilty of something, right? Well, actually he, he wasn't. So what had happened is that a few years before, his mother's house had been burgled. And in the process of investigating that scene, they'd recovered some cigarette butts from the back garden. And of course, you know, as a family member, if you're smoking, where do you end up smoking? Well, you get kicked out to the back garden, right? And so that was, they were his cigarettes and that's how his DNA ended up on the database was because uh, yeah, his cigarettes had been recovered um, during this investigation of the burglary of his mother's house. So his DNA was still on there and so they obviously had found what they thought was DNA coming from, from him um, and the police go and arrest him. And there starts his journey, um, being as he has stated, um, you know, falsely 
accused of this crime. Um, I've only ever worked for the defence. I like to think that I, as far as I can within my human biases, um, is to start in a neutral position and then consider the evidence given what the prosecution say, given what the defence say. At the time of that case, I was working for a consultancy firm called the Forensic Institute in Glasgow in the UK. And we, you know, a group of scientists, we are instructed by the defence to review over evidence uh, given by the prosecution to see whether there's any scientific challenge to be made. And so at that time, it was actually um, my boss, Alan Jameson, who was instructed on that case, along with um, Sue Pope, who was an independent forensic scientist um, for another company. And they were both instructed to review different elements of the DNA evidence. So um, Alan Jameson was instructed to review over this idea of DNA transfer and how the DNA got there. And Sue Pope was instructed on um, the complex statistics that had been used in the case to determine whose DNA um, it could be. I was then sort of brought in to, to support Alan and I did a lot of the research um, for the case and went to the court um, with him to sit and help the lawyers. And in you know, assessing this case and in considering the different activities put forward by the prosecution and the defence, we needed to consider um, various variables that might impact the finding of DNA. And so um, we were made aware that David Butler had a skin condition that meant that his skin flaked. And in fact, as you say, he was given the nickname by his friends as Flaky Dave. And so knowing that he had a skin condition um, that resulted in this um, flakiness, it meant that we knew that his DNA could be more readily shed than perhaps the average person. Because research has shown that people with skin conditions, for example, things like psoriasis and eczema, they can shed more DNA when they touch something than someone without those conditions. Where was his DNA actually found? So his DNA was found uh, on the fingernails of the deceased and on the buttonholes of the cardigan as well. Now, crime scene investigators um, at the crime scene, they're going to be wearing a lot of um, you know, personal protective equipment, the full gown, gloves, face mask, and they're changing gloves between handling items. So in theory, they're not going to be contaminating um, the items in any way. So the items will get recovered and they'll get packaged in a manner to preserve the evidence on the items uh, and then sent to the laboratory for examination. The laboratory will be have certain procedures to ensure that it's DNA free um, and that will also provide confidence that when you recover DNA from a particular location such as the buttonhole of the cardigan that that DNA was actually found that that's where it was deposited. So then we come, we need to start thinking about how did that DNA get there? Now, obviously, from the prosecution perspective, they're going with the DNA is present because um, Blakey Dave committed the crime. However, from a defence perspective, you need to think about, well, what are the other possible activities? What are the other possible explanations for that finding of the DNA? Now, as it turns out, um, David Butler was a taxi driver at the time when this uh, murder occurred. It is possible that he gave... Anne-Marie Foy, um, a ride in the taxi. And in the payment of that fare, there may well have been an exchange of money. And so, you know, I was in, in the courtroom when this trial was happening and I watched the you know, defence lawyer go through this um, discussion with the, with the uh, scientists of the defence. 
And he literally um, put his hand in his pocket and took out a handful of change and moved the change around in his hand to illustrate this, which I think was quite um, visual for the jury to explain this concept of, well, we handle our coins, we move them around. Obviously, they're going to be covered in our DNA. If we then give them to someone and, you know, maybe we get some change back, there's going to be an exchange of DNA. So... How many people's DNA are on those coins if they've been transferred from the newsagent to the shops to whom? You know, we get notes that have been very used. Coins go for years and years and years. So how much DNA are we transferring? How much do we have on our hands that doesn't belong to us? Yeah, so um, coins, likely you're going to get mixtures of DNA. Um, And it's the same with most surfaces. In fact, most items now... Even items that we mainly use, so let's take our mobile phone, for example, we're on it all the time, it's going to be mainly our DNA, but there are going to be other people's DNA on it. And it's going to get there for a variety of reasons. You know, I've left my phone on the, on the side, it's going to be picking up DNA that was already on the table. Um, on my hands, I'm going to be carrying around other people's DNA. And quite a lot of studies now are starting to show that up to about 10 to 15% of the DNA on our hands is actually coming from other people. Even though we wash our hands? Even though we wash our hands. Okay, so this a lot of that research is before COVID. So arguably, you could say now we probably wash our hands more than we ever did because we've got into that mindset because of COVID. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, so it may be that we now have possibly, um, I hypothesise, that maybe we have less of other people's DNA on our hands. But even then, even before COVID, we're still washing our hands pretty frequently anyway. Um, again, hopefully. It's sort of hard to judge now, but there's still that expectation of other people's DNA. And what research is also starting to show is that quite often that DNA is coming from what we would refer to as close associates. So they're people you live with, you know, your romantic partner, family members, um, people you have, you know, not necessarily contact with on a regular basis, but in the same environment as on a regular basis. And so firstly, we have the knowledge that David had a skin condition, so he's going to be leaving more DNA when he touches something. So shedding more than the average shedding person. Shedding more than the average person, exactly. We then know that Amarie Foy was wearing um, this kind of sparkling nail varnish, which would be a bit more sticky or glittery nail varnish. A bit more sticky, so might well have attracted more DNA to stick to those fingernails and therefore persist on the fingernails. And so then once you know she's got DNA on her hands... You know, obviously the buttonholes and buttons of the cardigan, that's an area that you're going to be handling and maybe taking off the cardigan, putting the cardigan on. Um, so you can imagine now that the DNA could get transferred from our hands to that area. So now we have um, a reasonable explanation for how his DNA could have got there. Now, this is the thing, though. In, within a trial, the DNA should never be the only piece of evidence. And legally speaking, it, it shouldn't. Uh, And there are laws in place where cases should never be on DNA alone. Sometimes there are loopholes and they sneak in here and there, but in theory there shouldn't be. So by the time a case goes to trial, there should be other evidence corroborating that DNA. Um, And so then it comes down to ensuring that the DNA is presented to the jury with the right evidential weight, with the right discussion between the different sides as to the different activities that could have resulted in the DNA evidence that's been observed, And then it's up to the jury to make the decision about guilt or not guilt. So what happens when I'm instructed on a case is quite often I don't actually end up giving evidence. What happens is that I help the lawyers, I educate the lawyers. Remember, lawyers aren't scientists, right? A scientist in the courtroom can only answer a question they've been asked. 
So you have to make sure the right questions are asked so the jury gets the right information. And so nine times out of 10, what I'll end up doing is providing the defense lawyers with the information to ask those right questions, to help educate the lawyers to ask the right questions. So we think of lawyers prepping witnesses, but you're actually prepping the lawyers. Correct, correct. Um, and, and when I've been in court, quite often I've sat behind the lawyers whilst the prosecution scientist has been giving evidence and, yeah, passed them little notes to ask certain questions to really help the prosecution scientist give the evidence with the right evidential value. And, it, and it's fascinating to watch the change in a scientist so that they can be very sort of prosecution focused and then you start asking them the right questions about DNA transfer and thinking about alternative activities that could have resulted in the DNA evidence and when you start to see them going oh yes that's possible yes that's possible you start to realize and the jury hopefully starts to realize that actually DNA isn't quite as cut and dried as we tend to think about it and you know you've talked about some of the statistics but you know I tend to think that when people hear DNA they hear guilty And I think we have to work really hard to educate the public, educate, because, you know, the public ultimately is what makes up our juries. So if we can try and educate the public that DNA isn't as cut and dried as all that, there are all these other considerations, then hopefully we can ensure that, you know, justice is done, whether that's someone being correctly prosecuted and and convicted, whether that's someone being um, found not guilty when they're innocent, or even when that's just someone ensuring that someone is not sent to jail Um, just on someone's gut feeling, even if they had done it, we want to make sure that we reach that burden of proof because that's what our justice system sits on, right? And the burden of proof, the onus is on the prosecution. In theory. And in theory, you're you're innocent until proven guilty, but I often don't think it actually works that way. I think there's there's a lot of emphasis on the the defence to actually say, oh, how did your evidence get there? But, But let's imagine for a moment, let's imagine that your DNA ended up a crime scene purely innocently, and your alibi is, well, I was at home sleeping on my own and you have no no alibi, essentially. You now have to provide some explanation for how your DNA got there. But if you genuinely were innocent, how would you be able to do that? It's like proving you didn't go somewhere. Exactly. And, or and you've never met someone. Yeah. And, and we do know from the research that your DNA can literally go places you've never been. So it, that becomes quite tricky. In Flaky Dave's case, did he have an alibi for where he was at the time of the murder? I don't know. As a forensic scientist, you don't get to hear everything about a case. And in some ways, that's a good thing because we know of contextual bias um, can be an issue in terms of how you interpret the evidence. So you only want to know the information that's relevant to you doing the job that you're currently doing. So if you're trying to interpret the DNA evidence given different activities that are put forward by the prosecution and the defence, that's all you want to know about. You don't need to know all about the other things that are going on with the case, A, in case it makes you biased, and B, just simply that's the way cases work. You know, everyone has their role to play and you're only given the, the information that you need to, to play that role. And even when I've gone to court, whether I'm giving evidence or whether I'm sitting behind the lawyers and helping them question um, the scientists... I'm only going to be there for the scientific evidence. I don't hear any of the rest of the case. And often, unless it's high profile in the media, I won't even necessarily know the outcome of a case either. But you know the outcome in this case? I do know the outcome of this case. Well, it was very high profile and it ended up being in the media. Um, And what happened to Flaky Dave? And Flaky Dave was found not guilty by the jury. Are you aware if that crime's ever been solved? I don't know. 
What do you take with you to a crime scene if you need to take DNA samples? So this actually varies between jurisdictions. Here in New South Wales, they are nearly do all the sampling at the scene. They do as much as they possibly can. So they'll use either swabs, like for example cotton swabs or nylon flock swabs, or they'll use um, adhesive pieces of tape. And literally at the scene when they use these items, whether a swab or a piece of tape to recover the DNA, they then put these within um, a tube, and we refer to it as a robot-ready tube, because that tube then gets sent directly to the laboratory where it's put on a series of robots to do the DNA processing. So that's all done in an automated fashion. So there's no human interference and risk of contamination from that point of view? Correct. It's all that happens at the scene, though. So it's actually an area of research I'm currently working on with New South Wales Police on helping um, develop an applicator to use with tape. So you can imagine, you know, let's say you're wrapping a present, right? Using a piece of adhesive tape, how difficult is that to stick down without getting your fingers all over it? Now, you imagine that at a scene, you don't want to get your fingers all over that. You don't want to contaminate it. Now, you're wearing gloves, but gloves aren't always clean. And we've seen from the research that we can transfer DNA via gloves. So you really want to handle it as little as possible. But at the same time, these pieces of tape are really small. They're about two centimetres by two centimetres square. So they're very small because they roll up and they go into the robot-ready tubes. So what we're trying to develop is an applicator, which means you remove all handling of the tape whatsoever. And that you can just click that tape off into the tube. You're not handling it at all. And it goes off to the lab. How far away potentially are you from that? Oh, we're at the early prototype stage at the moment. So we're still researching away. And then hopefully in about a year's time, we'll have more information on that. Is the ultimate goal to remove pretty much human handling? As, as much as we can do, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is, that's the goal because, you know, like I say, in New South Wales, because the sampling is done at the scene, there's a lot going on in the scene, right? It's not a clean environment. It's not like sampling in the laboratory where we go through a whole lot of procedure to ensure the laboratory is clean and DNA free. At the, la- at the crime scene, we can't do that. So we need to make sure we've got processes in place to try and minimise the likelihood of contamination occurring at the scene. So changing gloves, is that something really important for every specimen? Changing gloves is hugely important. Um, also wearing two pairs of gloves. So if you think about wearing gloves, it's, it's, it kind of has two purposes. One is to prevent you as an examiner depositing your DNA on your you know, precious um, potential evidence. But also you're wearing gloves to stop you transferring DNA from another surface you've just handled or searched or moved out of your way onto your precious evidence. So when you wear two pairs of gloves, you keep that inner pair is protecting your uh, item evidence from you. But your outer pair, you can then change really easily between handling different things so you're not transferring DNA from one surface to another. So in theory, that helps to um, prevent contamination as well, or at least minimise it. You mentioned too with the COVID example, speaking and Indeed. and breathing, obviously coughing. And sneezing and sneezing. all these things. Yeah. In terms of crime scene transfer, how easy it is when people are speaking to each other at a crime scene to transfer DNA? So research from um, Guy Rutty and others in the UK from around 2005, uh, 2006, they showed that um, speaking, you know, 
in front of an area at a crime scene and in fact even vigorous movement at an area in a crime scene could deposit their DNA up to a couple of metres away. So it was very easy to deposit DNA and back then our, our technology wasn't as sensitive as it is now. So now we add in sensitive, more sensitive technology and we envision that we can still obviously detect DNA that's going to be transferred in that way. So this is why um, at crime scenes we need to wear what we refer to as personal protective equipment or PPE. And, you know, you've seen them on TV. This is the big, you know, white suit that covers you from head to toe with the hood and the booties uh, and, of course, the face masks. So, and then the two pairs of gloves. Ideally, you'd secure your un- your first pair of gloves to the scene suit so you don't have a gap between the um, cuff of the suit and the glove. Um, that's a pet hate of mine in, on TV when you have that gap. I'm like, oh, they're shedding DNA everywhere. It's the skin. The skin. <laughs> so you make sure that, you know, as little of your skin and your hair is exposed to the scene. So you keep it all um, within that um, personal protective equipment. On television too, you often see the fringe out or on part the of the hair out. Or the hoods down. Because <laughs> it would ruin the hairdo. Well, it's an interesting one. I had a really interesting chat with a with a producer and he was saying that it's actually from a TV perspective, they need to actually allow the viewer to identify who the different people are because if everyone was you know, properly gowned up, you wouldn't know who was who. And I thought that was an interesting perspective on that from the TV maker's viewpoint. So they won't be wearing masks then, the they, actors? No, no exactly. And you, and you don't see it very often unless it's like minor characters in the background they might be wearing the full PPE, but then you have the police officers, you know, in their everyday clothes, standing at the front, right in the crime scene, having a chat with each other. I hope that would never happen in real life. What about someone else who may live in the house or someone, some things that might live in the house as well? I noticed there was a study about pets transferring DNA. So, you know, when we talk about um, DNA being on everyday environments, we think about those, those environments and those items as being stationary. So we think maybe, okay, we understand there'll be background levels of DNA, but we we feel like maybe we'll understand it more because it's stationary. But then when you add that to the idea of, you know, and you can think about stroking your dog, you're going to be depositing your DNA on that dog. That dog's now going to be mobile. So that dog's now going to be able to actually transfer your DNA around to other places in a manner that obviously a stationary item wouldn't. So now when you come to a crime scene, there are two issues with this. One is that that DNA is going to get transferred to different places where that person may not have ever touched. And two, they could actually then contaminate the scene essentially after a crime has occurred. Because, say, for example, a murder has happened within a, a person's residence and there's a pet there, let's say a dog, um, and maybe the dog was shut up in another room and then got out. That dog could then wander around that scene. And not only is it going to be transferring the victim's DNA to other places, but it might pick up DNA from the offender and move that around as well. And that could then start creating a a different image of what you think happened at the scene. Because when we think about DNA evidence, we're not just trying to think about who could have been involved, but we're also trying to think about what happened. We're trying to reconstruct the crime scene. How it got there specifically. How it got there, but also when it's found in different locations, you're trying to work out, well, okay, what were the different events that resulted in the DNA in those different locations? But if we throw into the mix a dog wandering around transferring DNA, well, that could actually muck up our interpretation of the crime scene. There's another case um, that's fascinating on this topic. In the US in 2012, it was the murder of Ravish Kumra. I was a billionaire in California and he and his ex-wife were at home one evening and three intruders broke in. And they ended up tying up 
various humour and his ex-wife using duct tape and duct taped the wrists and across the mouth and nose. Um, and then they spent a few hours, you know, ransacking and, and burglaring the, the the house. And during this time, the wife managed to get free and call for help. Um, but unfortunately, by the time police and paramedics arrived, Ravish Kumar had suffocated to death. So um, obviously an autopsy was done. And when they sampled underneath his fingernails, they found, um, they obviously they found his DNA, but they found DNA from another individual. They uploaded it to the database and they identified Lucas Anderson. And ultimately, Lucas Anderson was um, charged with this murder. And he was actually um, held in custody for about five months, I believe, um, until finally it came out as the defence did their investigations that firstly he was uh, unconscious in hospital from alcohol during the time this occurred, so couldn't have done it. Um, he had essentially a blood alcohol level of five times the legal li- limit of driving, but that in itself wasn't enough because his DNA was found there, you know, how could his DNA be underneath the fingernails of the deceased? And what they found when they went through this investigation was that the paramedics who'd attended the crime scene had actually been the same paramedics who'd picked up Lucas Anderson, you know, passed out on the sidewalk earlier in the day. So that was the link. And what they think is that that little device that you clip onto the end of a finger to the measure... The pulse them, oximeter. That one, I knew you'd know the word. I'd I never remember it. Um, that little device, they believe, transferred DNA from from one individual to the other, and that's how it ended up on the fingernails. Does it also matter um, the type of surface the DNA is found on? Yes. So the type of surface, if the surface is more absorbent, like for example, an item of clothing, we'd refer to that as a porous substrate. Then it might be um, more ready to like sort of soak in the DNA, for want of a better word. But on the flip side, therefore then harder to get the DNA out of um, that substrate. Whereas if we're talking about what we refer to as a non-porous substrate, so a smooth kind of hard surface, like a tabletop, for example, or the handle of a knife, then it's going to be easier to um, get the DNA off that item because essentially it's going to sort of sit on the surface. But um, it may not um, persist as well as if it were on a more absorbent surface. So there's a variety of factors coming into that. In addition, what you use to actually recover the DNA can have an impact. So whether you're using a swab or an adhesive piece of tape or whether maybe you're cutting out um, an item. So for example, if it's an item of clothing, you might be able to cut out a swatch from that and extract DNA directly. The different methods you use will also impact how much DNA you're able to get out. So there, there's a there's a lot a lot going on when thinking about here's an item, how do I go about sampling the, this DNA? Um, how much am I going to expect to get from this item? In terms of um, wet clothing, clothing that's got blood, um, I've seen at scenes people putting them into brown paper bags and then drying. So instead of putting into a plastic bag, for example, what difference does that make to the DNA preservation? Okay, so the way in which you package an item will also impact um, DNA preservation. So, for example, if you were to put an item of clothing into a plastic bag and seal it, you run the risk of there being mould growth, um, which will degrade the DNA. So actually, we don't package items of clothing in plastic bags. We package them in brown paper bags, which are much more breathable. However, when it comes to an item of clothing that is, for example, soaked in blood, 
it's wet. If you put that straight into a paper bag, it's just going to soak through the paper bag. So what you need to do is you put it inside a plastic bag, but you don't seal the plastic bag. You then put it inside the paper bag. You can seal the paper bag. And then you need to be really careful because you need to put some arrows on your paper bag to indicate this that way you keep... Up. Yep, this way up. Because otherwise, if you obviously turn it upside down, you now have the open end of the plastic bag in the paper. And again, the blood's going to drip out. So you need to make sure you keep it upright so that the plastic bag protects the paper bag from the blood soaking out. And yes, once the item is taken to um, the laboratory, laboratories have special drying rooms where items can literally be hung up within a cabinet um, to dry before it gets examined. One of my, sort of something that's in my brain, is the more sensitive you are to DNA collection, surely the more people's DNA you will collect, it seems, and if you can argue that it's possible for DNA to get to a scene in numerous ways, whether it's by money, credit cards, touch, taxi driving, in car, brushing in the street, shaking hands, using the same door, all the things that just sort of instantly come to mind, are you giving defence lawyers far more ammunition to actually create reasonable doubt? Arguably, yes. That said, though, I think in the interest of fairness, in the interest of ensuring that evidence is presented to the jury with the right evidential weight, I actually think it's really important. Because if these um, you know, activities were without basis, then all that's going to happen is the prosecution scientist is going to consider what's the chances and what's the likelihood of seeing the DNA evidence given those activities as opposed to what's the likelihood of seeing the DNA evidence given the activity of interest to the prosecution, they're going to consider that and it might end up that it's much more likely to see the evidence given what the prosecution say as opposed to what the defence said. But then that will get presented to the jury. However, because of all these ways that DNA gets transferred that we're now aware of, that becomes much more uh, tricky. And what's now happening is that um, when experts give evidence in court on this, the level of support for the prosecution as opposed to the defence actually is not as strong as it used to be. Um, which is, I think, a good thing because it means that we're being more cautious and being more fair in terms of ensuring that we're considering all these different ways that the DNA can get there. That said, though, that's when talking about DNA that could have been transferred in all these ways that you mentioned. Um, it's what we refer to as trace DNA. It's DNA that we can't attribute to a body flow. But if we got DNA and we got it from um, uh, body fluid, for example, blood or semen, and we're confident that that's where the DNA has come from, that gives us that extra layer of information when thinking about, okay, how was that DNA deposited in this crime scenario? And if it's, you know, semen or blood, well, clearly it's got some involvement with the crime that's occurred. And that's going to give a much higher evidential weight towards the prosecution. Studies I've seen... Um in America, say things like 95% of jurors have 100% faith in DNA, which is quite disturbing because if they listen, I've also heard um, surveys saying 80% of people on juries decide their verdict after the opening statements, which is incredibly <laughs> disturbing. And so if the jurors sitting there, are they actually going to have to decide whether the DNA is circumstantial evidence or hard science evidence. Is that going to be tricky for jurors to work out, do you think? It is. 
And this is why there is a push now for DNA experts to become much more educated and aware of considering the different activities that could have led to the DNA. And we refer to this as activity level evaluation. So back in the day when we we're just talking about who the DNA came from, we have statistics and we have numbers that we can give for that and it's much more straightforward. When it comes to talking about activity level evaluation, it's much harder and there are new processes that are being used in casework in the Netherlands. Um, they're being used uh, here in Australia a little bit more, a little bit more in the UK. They're gradually gaining prevalence and that is using what's referred to as a Bayesian network, which considers all the different variables um, and puts evidential weight on those different variables to work out a final evidential weight of what does the DNA mean uh, given these different activities. When we talk about whether the DNA came from a particular person of interest as opposed to someone else, you know, random in the population, the kinds of numbers we get to are in the billions. When we start talking about what's the likelihood of seeing the DNA given different activities, the kind of numbers we come to are actually more in the tens and hundreds. So right there, you can see the difference in evidential weight. The problem in some jurisdictions and, and in, in years before, and you know this evolution that we're now seeing, is that scientists would go to court and they'd see, oh, well, you know, we're seeing in the billions with this as to who the DNA came from. We can apply that to when we consider the activities. And we can't do that. It has to be a separate evaluation, a separate interpretation, and that's something we're pushing quite hard for at the moment, that um, just because you might be a DNA expert in who the DNA came from doesn't mean you're also a DNA expert in considering how the DNA got there. There are actually two different kinds of expertise. They require two different kinds of education and training. And we're really pushing hard for that to be recognised. And I think it is starting to be, um, especially here in Australia. In the Netherlands, they have it down really well, I think because they have um, a national register of experts and to apply to go on that register in order to give evidence in court, they go through a, a rigorous assessment process to demonstrate that they have the expertise, the education and the training for the different um, area of DNA expertise that they're um, applying to go to court on. I think other jurisdictions could look to the Netherlands and, and learn something from them. So it's almost like an independent group of specialists who have reached certain qualifications are accepted to be specifically expert in those areas as opposed to um, a prosecutor or defence going out and we used to call them liar for hire, experts who would um, spin the story depending on who was paying them. Correct. So if you remove that, then surely that is going to make it easier for jurors as well to interpret the expert opinions. Absolutely. And, and that's the point is that the better the expert is in their own expertise of, of being able to assess and interpret the evidence and then obviously communicate that to the jury, then that takes away the jury having to decide, well, what's the evidential value of that, of that evidence? They then know what the evidential value is. They then need to consider that within the, obviously the rest of the evidence that's being presented to them and then make their decision in that informed way. Georgina, this conversation has been incredibly fascinating, slightly disturbing because it's shattered some of my faith in <laughs> DNA. Well, well I hope it's done the same for the listeners as well. Yeah, there's no absolutes in DNA and I think that's the greatest take-home lesson. And 
we need more information and the more research that's coming, the better informed we can be. Exactly. So thank you so much for joining us today and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you very much. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. <laughs>